0: Today is August 18th, and you are listening to the Reading Through the Bible Together podcast. My name is Blake Farley, and we're beginning a brand new book in the Old Testament today, Esther chapters 1 through 3. So let's go ahead and jump in. New Living Translation, as always, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Medea, as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. That's a party, my friends. <laughs> Continuing on. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyria, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashishi gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, that is Bible talk for drunk, he told the seven eunuchs, I, I, I added the commentary there, if you were wondering. He, he, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Maham, Bizva, Habara, Bigmath, Abagath, Zephyr, and Carcass, to bring Queen Vashisi to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashisi, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors, who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were Kashini, Shemitha, Adamitha, Tarshish, Meresis, Merserisius, and Mamikum, seven nobles of Persia and Medea. They met with the king regularly and held the highest position in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashisi? The king asked. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders? properly sent through his eunuchs. Memekai answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vishisi has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vishisi has refused to appear before the king. Before his day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. Oh my. How bad would it be if women actually weren't objectified? Yeah, verse 19. So if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medeas that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes. Seems a little severe, doesn't it? And that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. And by respect it means total allegiance. Verse twenty one. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense. Yeah, of course they did. They were all men. Sorry for my deep sarcasm as I read this. Uh, verse twenty one, I'm just gonna I'm gonna just gonna read, I promise. So he followed Mimicum's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Moving into chapter 2, verse 1. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Bashisi and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Ashiti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of J.R., he was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shishmai. His family had been among those who, with King Jekiah of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the king's palace in the harem. Esther had had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would... Take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning she was brought to the sacred second harem, where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shishgaz, the king's eunuch, in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. This king was real fool of himself. Verse 15. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch, in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Ashidi. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the providences and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigamathiah and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impelled on a sharpened pole. This was all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Moving into chapter 3, verse 1. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Hamnon, son of Hamaneth the Agonite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Hammond saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire emperor of Exerces. Road rage much? Yeah, he didn't bow down and show him respect, so the natural conclusion this guy had was, you know what I ought to do? I ought to destroy all the Jews. Yeah, a little bit excessive. Verse 7, So in the month of April... During the twelfth year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast in Haman's presence. The lots were called Perman, to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day was selected as March 7th, nearly a year later. That had to be disappointing for Haman. Verse 8, Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the providence of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different from those of any other people. And they refused to obey the laws of the king, So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government, administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. And now the king has a choice, my friends. This is me adding interjection. Uh, Because every king we've read so far in our one-year Bible plan that has tried to go against the king of this universe, God, it has not worked out for them. So is King Xerxes going to try to take on Yahweh? We're going we're gonna to find out. And, and by the way, it probably doesn't take much guessing to know what he's going to do here. I mean, this is the guy who uh, banished his wife because she didn't want to be objectified by him. This is the guy who uh, wanted to find a new wife, so he got all the virgins in the entire empire and made them go through beauty treatments for a year before they could spend one night with him. And then if he's so pleased, he might call them back for another night with him. Yeah, this guy. Let's see what he says. Is he going to take on Yahweh? Verse 10, the king agreed. Of course he's going to take on Yahweh. This guy thinks he is God. So we'll see how it works out for him. Hadn't worked out for anybody else. We'll see if King Xerxes has it work out for him. He's going to take on God's people. Verse 10, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving to Haman, son of Hamadeth, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. So on April 17th, the king's secretaries were summoned, and a decree was written exactly as Hammond dictated. It was sent to the king's highest officers, the governors of the respective providences, and the nobles of each providence in their own scripts and languages. The decree was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Dispatches were sent by swift messengers into all the providences of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. Annihilated on a single day. I promise I can I can talk, guys. This was, <laughs> this was scheduled to happen on March 7th of the next year. The property of the Jews would be given to those who killed them. You know, naturally. Again, all of this because one Jew wouldn't bow down. So, they all have to be killed and slaughtered. Just ridiculous. But that is the powers of this world. Verse 14. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every providence and proclaimed to all people's so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers, and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. Ah, and that is where Old Testament reading ends a cliffhanger. King Xerxes taking on Yahweh. We will see how this ends out for our fella who, as you can tell by the contempt in my voice throughout the reading I am not a big fan of. <laughs> Moving into the New Testament, first Corinthians, chapter eleven, verse seventeen to thirty four. This is chapter eleven, verse seventeen of first Corinthians. But in the following instructions I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course there must be divisions among you, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on you what I receive from the Lord himself on the night night. When he was betrayed, the Lord took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are sick and weak, and some have even died. Okay, so let's pause, because this verse was used as a weapon against me as a kid growing up. And I'm sure I had well-meaning Bible teachers, but they, they, um, they would use this verse to keep people from taking communion. Uh, if you had sin in your life, then you weren't supposed to take communion, because if you did, then you were bringing God's judgment upon yourself, and you, you might even be killed. Uh, and yet what they completely neglected to do was give the context of this verse. Paul is telling people to examine themselves, not because they are sinners, no, but because some people are going in, and instead they had food at their own home, but they're, they're overeating at the Lord's Supper, and the people who are actually poor and hungry don't have anything to eat at the Lord's Supper, so Paul is saying, you know, God takes the poor really seriously. It's kind of a huge theme throughout the Bible, and uh, God is a defender of the poor. So these people coming in, misusing the Lord's Supper uh, to actually um, put down the poor. So the, the the moral of the story is not don't don't take of communion if you have sin in your life. No, you need communion more than anybody else. Why? Because what does communion represent? the body which was given for you, the blood that was poured out for you. I need communion when I'm in sin more than anything else because it is what leads me to repentance. I need to be reminded that I don't have to beg God for forgiveness anymore as a Christian. I thank Him for forgiveness. And yet in my heart of hearts, oftentimes I let my sin override me with condemnation. I forget what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then... He lived the righteous life for you, my friend. He died the death you deserve to die, and on the cross, He said, it is finished. He didn't say, it is finished, and if they mess up, they have to really beat themselves up, or else I will kill them. No. He said, it is finished. The sin is paid for. And we come to communion, and uh, we are reminded of that forgiveness. And you say, oh, but won't people just go on sinning all the more if we don't scare them into examining themselves? No. If you scare people, and you take verses out of context, what it does is it leads to shame and guilt, which leads to more sinning. It is the overwhelming, scandalous grace of God that leads people to bow down in all-encompassing, lifestyle type of worship. Because how could this Father be so good to a sinner like me? So do not let anybody beat you up with this verse. The Lord's Supper is exactly for the poor, the weak, and the sinners because it reminds them of what Jesus Christ has done for them. This verse was a warning to those who misused the Lord's Supper for their own benefit. And I believe that would include church leaders who try to use this as a weapon against people to get power over them. Just some food for thought. Verse 31. Blake rant over. (laughs) But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. See, there it is again. We're, we're waiting to allow them to eat. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. So nobody reads the context of this. Verse 34 continued. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. So that concludes our New Testament reading. Sorry, but every time I come across that verse, I just I uh, have to, to speak on it because people, it's supposed to be, the Lord's Supper is all about God's grace and, and we make it about condemnation. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. Those who are, who are sinners and they've been convicted of sin need the Lord's Supper more than anybody else. Not get your life right and then come to the table. Oh, that's, that's anti-Jesus. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 19 and 20. It's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. Solomon said it, not me, friends. Just reading the Bible. Verse 20, the wise have wealth and luxury. The fools spend whatever they get. And finally, we will read Psalm 35, verses 17-28 through in a posture of prayer. This is verses 17-28 and of the 35th Psalm, beginning here in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks. Protect my life from these lions. Then I will thank you in front of the great assembly. I will praise you before all the people. Don't let my treacherous enemies rejoice over my defeat. Don't let those who hate me without cause gloat over my sorrow. They don't talk of peace. They plot against innocent people who mind their own business. They shout, Aha! Aha! With our own eyes, we saw him do it. O Lord, you know all about this. Do not stay silent. Do not abandon me now, O Lord. Wake up. Rise to my defense. Take up my case, my God and my Lord. Declare me not guilty, O Lord my God. For you give justice. Do not let my enemies laugh about me and my troubles. Do not let them say, Look, we got what we wanted. Now we will eat him alive. May those who rejoice at my troubles be humiliated and disgraced. May those who triumph over me be covered with shame and dishonor, but give great joy to those who came to my defense. Let them continually say, Great is the Lord who delights in blessing his servant with peace. Then I will proclaim your justice, and I will praise you all day long. Lord, thank you that you are the God who, through Jesus Christ, gives us peace. What a blessing it is for those of us who trust in him as our Savior and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining me for today's reading. Uh, Excited to pick back up in Esther tomorrow, and we get to continue Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Love to hear your thoughts on today's reading or any of the other readings, and hope to see you back here tomorrow as we continue our journey reading through the Bible together.